So 1 Corinthians 10, and we'll begin down in verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And you can be seated. All right, so we are talking about the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, we're also going to be talking about idolatry, actually going to be talking about idolatry first and then diving back into uh, the Lord's Supper. But ever since I became a believer at the age of 14, uh, that's when I first really started going to church. And, and when I first started going to church is when I also first started taking the Lord's Supper. And I have to tell you, I've always cherished taking the Lord's Supper. It's always been this great, sacred time, even without even knowing formally what all is going on at the Lord's Supper or why we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's also it's always been a special thing to me. Um, and, and, and even early on, I, I didn't have a, a really strong understanding of, of what the Lord's Supper was about. Part of that was that the, the church that I attended in high school and then later in college they only took the Lord's Supper once a month, and even then, they usually only took it in the evening service. And so because of my work schedule, I, I, I would only take the Lord's Supper maybe a few times a year, maybe maybe a handful at the most. Um, and, and I will also say, and, and some of you guys who, who have listened to me preach for, for a while, uh, my understanding of the Lord's Supper has matured over the years. There's been this little bit of an evolution as, as, I've, as I've dug into the Bible and um, and, and really tried to understand what is it that we do when we come together and we take the wine and we take the bread and we do this together. Um, just, just a little survey of how my, how, how my view has changed over the years, because you guys, uh, maybe you've seen this or, or maybe you, you haven't. Uh, the first big change came about eight years ago when I became convinced that we should take the Lord's Supper weekly, actually. The, the Bible not only shows this pattern that when Christians get together, they take the Lord's Supper. We see that all through the book of Acts, but we'll see later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul just assumes, hey, when you guys gather together and you take the Lord's Supper, and then he goes on. So there's this, this assumption, this teaching that when we gather together as a church, we take the Lord's Supper. So on the Lord's Day, you take the Lord's Supper with the Lord's people, remembering the Lord's death until the Lord comes. This this whole day is about the Lord. I, I know you don't need a reminder of that, but, but everything about what we do, including the Lord's Supper, is about Jesus. And then as I studied more, it also seemed pretty clear that baptism precedes the Lord's Supper. So for those who claim 
faith, profess faith in Jesus, their first act of obedience, the first sacrament that they take part of is baptism. And then they take part of the Lord's Supper. There's, there's a proper order that, that we do here. Um, to get those out of order would be like celebrating your anniversary and then one day getting married. Really, the idea is we, we, we show our commitment to the Lord and then we remember that commitment every week as we take the Lord's Supper. Again, we see this through the book of Acts. You have someone, you know, come up to the apostles. What must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. And then right after that, they take part in the life of the church, including the Lord's Supper. And so there's a, there's a primacy of baptism. Maybe put a different way. If you're not obedient in baptism, why would you want to be obedient in the Lord's Supper? No, the, the obedience first starts in baptism where we proclaim to the people of God, I'm on your team. This is what I'm part of. And so baptism precedes the Lord's Supper. And so just to kind of connect to the dots, if you have not been baptized, I would encourage you to be baptized and then come and enjoy the Lord's Supper with the family. The evolution kept going on. Uh, the next step in my sort of understanding of the Lord's Supper is that wine, and not grape juice, is actually an important element of the Lord's Supper. I, I've been raised in sort of Baptistic circles. This, this isn't even a discussion in the Presbyterian churches, by the way. They just all use wine. But in Baptist circles especially, in non-denominational circles, um, there, was, there was just always grape juice. And um, I never really questioned why. There was some, some question of, well, you know, it, it might be a stumbling block for some people, that sort of thing. Um, but, but what we see throughout the Bible is wine actually represents the blessing of God. All throughout the Bible, when, when God is blessing Israel, their wine vats are full. And, and then, then we see even some, some prophecies about Jesus in the Messianic age. And when the Messianic age comes, the vats will always be full. It will always be blessing. And Jesus signals that the Messianic age has come with his very first miracle, which is turning water into, into wine. And so there's this symbolism of, of wine. Now, I think you guys know when we take the Lord's Supper, we got some juice there in the middle. Um, we do that for two reasons. Number one, uh, for those who are visiting or guests or whatever, and they've never had wine before, I would rather them just take what's comfortable and, and worry about, you know, do I take wine or not later? Um, so, so we have that available. The other are, are for those who maybe have a, a background with alcohol and they're just done with touching alcohol forever. It would violate their conscience. We would rather them come and take juice um, and, and, and celebrate the Lord's death. So, so we have wine available. We have juice available. Um, more than anything, we want baptized believers to partake in the Lord's Supper. And just want you guys to understand, none of the differences on any of these is like heresy or anything. Right. It, it's, so, so I'm talking to my buddy uh, this week. He's a pastor. And uh, they take the Lord's Supper every week. They use grape juice and leavened bread. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Leavened bread? Anyway, so we're going back and forth. It's not like it's heresy. It's just that's how they do it. And that's OK. I think what we want to do is, is try to try to um, mirror what we see in uh, in the Bible as close as possible. I will even tell you this very week. I also came to a conclusion on the Lord's Supper that I had never had before based on this text. We'll get there in a little bit. Hold your breath. We'll be there. Where are we at in 1 Corinthians? If you've been here over the last month and a half or so, you know that starting all the way back in chapter 8, 
Paul has made this argument about not eating meat sacrificed to idols in a pagan temple. Christians are not to go down to the pagan temple, the local pagan temple, and go have steak or go have pork or whatever, because that would be an act of idolatry. It would be participating in idolatry. The Corinthians were doing this, and they were saying, well, we've got, we've got all these different reasons that we can do this. And Paul's argument from chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10 has been varied based on the arguments that he's hearing from the Corinthians. So he's trying to attack all of, all of the arguments. Really, what we get down to today here is just that the bottom line argument is that you cannot go to a pagan temple and eat meat sacrificed to idols because that is just simply idolatry. That's the bottom line, and that's what we see here in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's made all of these other arguments to get to all of these other excuses the Corinthians are making, but bottom line is, don't go do this. Do not go down to the pagan temple and eat meat there because it is, in fact, idolatry. And so so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through this little section here sort of two times. We're going we're gonna to look at why don't we go down to the pagan temple? What's going on when we commit idolatry? And then we're going to take that information and we're going to apply that to the Lord's Supper because there's some parallels there. And I think our understanding of the Lord's Supper is going to be enriched as we understand about the danger of idolatry. So we're going to go through this focusing on idolatry and then we'll focus on the Lord's Supper. So just a few points about idolatry. The the first one is that that as believers, we need to flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, so a sense of endearment here, flee from idolatry. Run away from idolatry. Get as far away as you possibly can from idolatry. And the problem is that the Corinthian church was dabbling in idolatry. They were excusing their idolatry. They were going down to the pagan temple, going down to the cults, and they were dabbling in it. They were winking and nodding and making all these clever arguments about how their liberty allows them to go down and sacrifice to pagan idols. And he says, no, you need to run away. You need to get away from it. Don't excuse it. Don't try and soften it at all. You need to get away. But we kind of have to step back and go, why is idolatry so dangerous? I mean, what what really is the problem with with idolatry? Because this seems to be a little bit of the argument that the Corinthians are making. You know, they, they can say, look, when we go down to the pagan temple, we know that there's no God but one, right? We all believe that. There's only one God. So when we go down to the pagan temple, we're not actually worshiping anything down there. Because there's no other gods. Oh, well, that's a pretty clever argument. Because if you say, well, yeah, but you really are worshiping Zeus or Aphrodite or whoever, then you're saying, well, there's actually another god. So you can't have it both ways. Paul says, Paul says, you know, well, but actually there's secret option number three. It's not just that there's no gods and it's not that you're legitimizing this thing. Idolatry is actually demon worship. That's the second point. Idolatry is demon worship. Look at verse 20. He says, no. Actually, look up at 19. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He's saying, am I telling you that an idol is real? Verse 20, no. I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons 
and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So this is secret option number three. It's not that there's nothing down there, and it's not that there's there's a, a real alternate God down there. Actually, what's down at the pagan temple are demons. And when you sacrifice to Zeus or Aphrodite or whoever, you're actually participating with demons. You're involved in demon worship. That's what's happening. These Christians who have been saved by the blood of Jesus are now going and they are having a meal with demons. Paul says, no, you cannot do this. So, so when people are engaging in false worship and in idolatry, we need to understand as believers, they're not engaging in nothingness. It's not like they're just, you know, out there, you know, ignorantly worshiping to nothing. No, it's demonic, satanic activity that is going on. You know, when we think of, of like uh, tribal missionaries going into the tribes, that sort of thing, and they're, they're preaching the gospel to, to really unreached people, you talk to some of those missionaries, and what goes on in those unreached tribes is way dark. It is demonic on the deepest level. I mean, all this witchcraft and, I mean, just every disgusting thing that you can imagine. Why? Why isn't it just this happy-go-lucky, you know, they go offer some incense to some fictional thing? Because there really is demonic activity going on when pagans sacrifice and when pagans worship. So we need to understand that Allah is not a god, but there is a demon behind Allah. Buddha is not a god, but there is a demon behind Buddha. Same thing with Hinduism, the Norse gods, the Mormon gods, the Catholic god. There's all of that. There is demonic activity behind all of that. Did you know that Jesus himself says that Judaism that rejects Christ is satanic? He says that two times in Revelation, once in chapter 2, once in chapter 3, that those who go down to the synagogue to worship who reject Jesus are actually going to the synagogue of Satan. If you're worshiping anything other than Christ, there is satanic, demonic activity involved. I don't know about you, but that's pretty radical. That's the gloves are off, but that's what he's getting at here. When there's pagan worship going on, there's always demonic activity involved. This is serious business. This is, this is why we don't play around. I was actually talking to Dave, what, a week and a half ago or so, and he was asking me about Lent. And I know nothing about Lent. But what I do know is that when we lived back in Kentucky, uh, my buddy lived right across the street from a Catholic church. And uh, so during Lent, the Catholic church would have a fish fry. And so you could go down to the Catholic church and you could get like just beautiful, juicy fish all fried up with massive plate of, of uh, French fries. And I mean, it was, it was like three bucks. And it was good. And we went down there every Friday night and we ate. And Dave's like... Well, isn't that kind of like going down to the pagan altar and eating? And I had never thought of it that way, actually. And I'm trying to justify it. I'm like, well, you know, we did talk to some people about theology. And uh, at three bucks, I can't imagine they were making much of a profit. And I'm trying to justify it, you guys. All I wanted was a cheap meal. Like, that's all I wanted. It was good. It was cheap. Like, and he's like... But you're going down to the false god and eating. You guys, I was. That's what they're doing. That's what I was doing. We can get taken up in that. It's, this isn't like some, you know, long time ago in a galaxy far away. This still happens. 
This still happens. So my cute story about Lent brought me to the realization that I've been involved in idol worship. Here's the interesting thing. When you involve food into the act of worship, it actually transforms into something else. And that's what we see here. It transforms into what the Bible calls koinonia. It transforms into fellowship, true, real fellowship. And that's that's the third point here with idolatry. When you combine food and worship, it becomes intimate communion with whoever you're worshiping. So we call this the Lord's Supper. We also call it communion, don't we? So, so communion is, is when you're having an intimate fellowship with other people. So we often think of it, we're having intimate fellowship with one another. Well, we kind of are, but really we're having intimate fellowship with who? With Jesus, with the Lord. We have, when we take communion, we are communing, we're fellowshipping, we're koinonia with Jesus. That's what we're doing. And that's what we see here with the Lord's Supper, but the danger with idolatry is that you might be communing, fellowshipping with a demon. Notice verse 19. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be koinonia in fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake. You cannot koinonia the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't have it both ways. That intimate, close fellowship that we have with Jesus is exactly what's going on with demons if you go down to the pagan temple and eat down there. So there's a real fellowship going on there. There's a real connection going on there. And if it's true that there's a real connection going on with demons, what's it true of what's going on at the Lord's Supper? That there's a real intimate fellowship going on when we take the Lord's Supper. He's saying it's going on on both sides. It's going on here when we take the Lord's Supper. But there's actually real koinonio going on down at the pagan temple. It's not with a God and it's not with nothing. It's with demonic, satanic beings. That's pretty scary. But that's what's going on. And he says, you can't do it. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it at all. You can't have communion with the Lord and communion with demons. Again, the word that we use here is koinonia. It's fellowship. Uh, We don't really have anything in the English language that quite translates this. Um, We have... Various translations have sharers or partakers or participants, that sort of thing. That's kind of cold. Um, fellowship, we don't even use all that much. But, it, but it's basically just an intimate connection that's going on. That, that's all it is. It's, it's an intimate connection. Um, and they're having this intimate encounter with demons. And then on Sunday, they're showing up and trying to have an intimate encounter with Jesus. And this was understood by the Hebrews. When you eat part of your sacrifice in the temple, you go down to the temple, you bring your little sheep, you slaughter your little sheep, some of it gets burned up, some of it gets thrown out, and you eat some of it. When you are eating part of your sheep or your goat or your oxen or whatever, you're eating it in sight of the temple. You're eating it in front of the Lord. You're eating with God is the idea. You're fellowshipping with God. You are communing, koinoniaing with God. And that's what he says here in verse 18. He says, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice, sacrifices participants, koinonia, 
in the altar. Isn't there intimate fellowship going on even in the old covenant? Well, of course there is. And you see this all the time when they're talking about sacrifices that you eat in the presence of the Lord. It's not just like you're going into this empty building and, you know, you're you're having barbecue or something. No, you're coming and you're sacrificing. There's atonement being made and you are having intimate fellowship with the God who is forgiving your sin. Well, that's that's what we're doing right here. Is we're having that intimate fellowship. And you can't play both sides of the field. He adds a little jab at the end. Are you stronger than God? Who do you think is going to win here? You keep going down and having intimate fellowship with demons and intimate fellowship with the Lord. Like that's going to provoke one of those to jealousy. And it's going to be the Lord. And it ain't going to go well. So you need to get that out. Now here's the deal. So, so all of that true communion, communion that goes on between the pagans and demons, and it is real and it is true communion. That's, that's his whole argument. Because you can't have both. It's real and true communion with demons when you go down to the pagan altar. The implication here, the obvious implication is that what we do is real and true communion with Jesus. I just want you guys to to step back and understand this. When when you take the cup and when you take the bread, you are remembering the death of Jesus. But this is the close thing, you guys, that we will have to having dinner with Jesus, this side of glory. This is the closest thing. It's intimate. It's close. This isn't just something that we kind of go and do on our own. No, this is, this is you and Jesus in the presence of everybody else with Jesus coming and having intimate fellowship with the Lord who died for your sins. That's what's going on here. This is sacred stuff, you guys. This is very sacred. This is holy. This is the closest you're going to get this side of glory to having a, a, an intimate relationship with Christ. And that's the first point we see in verse 16, that the Lord's Supper is koinonia with the blood of Jesus. It's fellowship with his blood. Verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation In the blood of Christ. That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. It is a participation. It is a fellowship. It is a koinonia. And what he's talking about here is when he says the cup, he's he's talking about the wine or the juice that we take at the Lord's Supper. So when Jesus instituted the Last Supper, there were four cups of wine. The third cup is called the cup of blessing or the cup of thanksgiving. That's the one that he used to say, this is my blood. And so, so we... We can refer to this as the cup of blessing because that's the cup that Jesus used. And so when you see that that idea that the people are blessing God in the Bible, the idea is they're giving thanks to God. They are thanking God for the redemption that he has provided. And again, this is a rhetorical question. Isn't the cup of blessing that we bless, isn't it participation? Isn't sharing and isn't it koinonia, having intimate, close fellowship with Jesus and his blood? And the answer is yes. It is. Every time we take this, there is this intimate fellowship, intimate communion that we are having with the blood of Jesus. And you say, well, don't we already have that just by being saved? And the answer is, well, of course. We do have that by virtue of being saved. But there is an intimate way in which this is applied when we come together week in, week out, and take this together. There's an intimacy that we have when we share together. And this is, this is true 
um, really with any meal, right? Anytime you have two people come together and, and eat something together, there's, there's something specific, right? I mean, just think about it. If you've got a guy who's sitting at a table, an empty table, you know what that's called? It's called a break. If you've got a guy and a girl sitting at an empty table, it's called a conversation. What's it called when you add food? It's called a date. It gets a whole lot more intimate, doesn't it? It gets closer. There's just something that happens when you're sharing food together. Even in, our, even in real life. Just among people. The same thing is true with, with God. Is there's this closeness. And, and just by the way, I'm not talking about transubstantiation. The Catholic Church thinks that the, the wine and the bread actually turn into the literal blood and body of Jesus. The Bible does not support that. I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that at all. Transubstantiation is not a biblical teaching. But there is just a fellowship, a communing that we have with Jesus when we come to the table. And you say, well, what exactly does that mean? And i got, I got to tell you, I don't 100% know. Because this is the most that we have on this teaching. But it seems to be very clear that there is a, a communing that goes on. And so when you drink this cup, you are communing with the blood of Jesus. You say, well, what does that mean? It's as though you and Jesus are sitting at a table and he is telling you as he slides the cup to you, my blood still covers your sins. He's talking to you in the meal. And when you take the cracker, he's saying, my body was still crushed for your sins. Whatever you've done this week or haven't done this week or, or whatever, it's still covered. I've still got you. And you pick that up and you taste it and you smell it and you touch it and you swallow it. And you take in a real reminder, a real communing with Jesus that he's covered everything. He's still covered everything. And you will continue to cover everything until he comes and sin is eradicated. That's what we're doing when we come, you guys. That is holy. That is sacred. Jesus himself says in John 6.55, My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's not talking that this turns into literal stuff. He's talking about taking this communion, being in him all the time, refreshed in the gospel all the time. We feed over and over on the blood, on being reminded in intimate communion with God that our sins are forgiven and that his body was crushed for us. So the supper is koinonia with the blood of Jesus. It's also koinonia with the body of Jesus. Look at verse 18, excuse me, 16. So the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So the bread is just like the wine. It doesn't turn into the literal body of Jesus. That's not the case. Again, the case is that when we take the cracker and we crush it between our teeth, we are reminded. It's as though Jesus is saying, as you crunch down and you hear that and you taste that and you feel that and you smell the bread... Be reminded that I was crushed for you. My body was broken for you. There's nothing you can add to your salvation. There's absolutely nothing that can take away from your salvation. Your salvation is all secured in me. And you have tasted it. You've smelled it. You've touched it. You have experienced it. And it's though he is telling you this. 
Those who come to the table are reassured by Jesus himself over a meal that God is no longer angry at them. The wrath of God has been removed, you guys. So if you were physically present here, you'd be talking about his blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, new covenant promises. If you were physically here, you'd be talking about how his flesh was crushed for our salvation. He's not physically present here. He's physically present in heaven. The elements here represent that. And the communion, the communication he's giving to us is the same communication that he gave to the disciples on the last night. It's the same story. Hey, believer, remember, my body was crushed for you and my blood was poured out for you. Even now, week after week after week after week, it's there for you. Take courage. You've been forgiven. You know, with all of our technological inventions, communication has increased. um, And we've been doing some FaceTime a little bit more with family members or Facebook, whatever that messenger thingy is. And uh, technology is not always reliable. And so there are times when it's like you're, you're sitting there having a conversation and the screen goes blank. It's like, I can hear what they're saying and I know they can see me and hear me, but I can't see them. But we're having this conversation, this fellowship, like it's as close as we can get to being together. That, that's kind of what it's like when we have communion. The screen is blank, right? But we're hearing his word and he sees us and he knows us. There's this communication. It's imperfect, but it's there. It's this intimate connection that we have with the body and blood of Christ. The third thing to note about our time with the Lord's Supper is that breaking the bread brings the body of Christ together. The breaking of bread brings the body of Christ together. Look down at verse 17. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So what you need to understand is this intimate fellowship meal that we take part in is not just between me and the Lord or you and the Lord, although it is. It's between all y'all and the Lord. It's between each individual one of us in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of one another, communing with the Lord, feeding on his flesh, drinking his blood together taking in the grace of the reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus. When we come to this table and we can be reminded that that whatever else, whatever differences we might have, and I'm sure there's a lot of differences in this body of Christ, whatever, whatever differences we might have, you know what the one thing we have in common is? That our source is Jesus. It is the Lord that brings us together. It's his body. It's his blood that brings us together. Now, I told you a little preview of coming attractions on something else that I've changed my view on. Just look at verse 17. This is a plain, simple reading. Because there is one bread, we who are the one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So what we have here are prepackaged, individual cut-up wafer chips. Of bread. I don't think that's sinful, you guys. I've done that ever since I was 14. But there is some imagery I think we're missing by not actually breaking off bread and taking it back to our seats. Why? Because there is an imagery of we are part of one thing. 
And I ordered new matzo for next week. It couldn't get here in time. But I ordered new matzo. It's gluten-free. Y'all can take it. But we're going to break it off. Why? Because I think the imagery is actually important. To be reminded as we break it off. Hey, I'm part of the last guy that broke it off. And the person behind me, we're all part of the same source. We all take from the same from the same source. There's just some imagery there. Are people who are we in sin because we have chips? No, we're not. But I think there's something valuable to seeing this communion. It's not just communion with the Lord, it's communion with one another. It's we're all taking part in the Lord's body. We're all taking part in the Lord's blood together. There's this imagery that I think is important for us to understand. Again, I don't want to be legalistic. I'm not trying to be legalistic. But I think the closest we can get to what the Lord's Supper actually was, the better. We don't take Mountain Dew and Oreos. Why? Because it's kind of missing the point. It's, it's a liquid and it's a solid. And we eat it, I guess. Right? So, so we're trying to get the symbolism as close as possible to understand what God is trying to tell us as we commune with him. So when we take that bread, that one loaf, it's not just our own individual thing. It's, hey, my body was broken for you and everyone else who's taking this meal. I've laid my life down for all of you together. And don't forget that as we commune together. This meal very much brings us together. Look over at chapter 11 for just a moment toward the end. At the end of chapter 11, Paul deals with the Lord's Supper a little bit more properly because as we'll find out, they had completely messed up the Lord's Supper too. But look at the end of the chapter, the last two verses. Verses 33 and 34, he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So when you come together, there's a uniting aspect of this meal when we partake together. It happens always in the context of a local church. People say, well, I, I, do, I do communion at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I guess you can, but the idea is in the context of the local church assembly where your brothers and sisters in Christ are all gathered together to be reminded of the body and blood of Jesus. We eat it corporately, and we wait for each other. Why? Why do we wait? Why don't you just go down and do it on your own time? Well, you can, but there is a sense in which we all take together to be reminded at the same time of this communing that we have with Jesus. And the meal is not about filling our bellies. It's about filling our souls. It's about encouraging us again in the gospel, again that your sins have been forgiven, again that God is not against you, but God is for you. So much that he sent his son to lay down his life for you. And we are so faithless, you guys. We need this reminder week in, week out, all the time. The blood's still fresh. The body's still there. He's done one time what took a million priests and a million sacrifices. It could never do. Jesus did in one sacrifice for us to cover us. If that's you, if you've been baptized, if you have followed the Lord Jesus in faith, come enjoy the meal. Come enjoy the grace of God. Be refreshed again that your sins are forgiven and that he will carry you till the end. You can come forward.